Hello and welcome to Leviathan News. Today is October 5th and we've got a double header today. Uh, we have Gene from Mux who is here to talk about their STIP application for the Arbitrum grants. And then we also have Millie who is here to uh, walk us through what's happening with Maker and then also the whole situation with the library migration as well too. Welcome, welcome everyone. Hey. Thank you for having me, everybody. Uh, so we flipped a coin and Gene's going to go first. So Gene, maybe you can introduce yourself and talk a little bit about Mux. Sounds good. Hey, everyone. Uh, nice to meet all of you. Uh, so this is Gene, and I am one of the core contributors of Mux Vertical. And personally, have I have been involved in the uh, DeFi space back in 2018. And yeah, we started, actually, we started Mox Protocol, like, back in, like, about four years ago. Um, yeah, but at that time, we're not an aggregator yet. And we're just, like, building the decentralized perps. And we have another name, but we rebranded to Mox last year. So a little bit of history of Mox. Um, so, yeah, so Mox, as you know, like, right now, we are an aggregator of decentralized perpetual swaps. And we have integrated with... GMX, we won GMS V2 gains. And also we have a Mox native pool. Uh, so for Mox native pool, we are like supporting up to 100 times of leverage, uh, zero price impact and um, yeah, zero counterparties for traders. Yeah, perhaps a little cool features. And yeah, so right now, like we have the Mox protocol has been up for about like one year. Uh, during the past a couple of months, I think we're gaining pretty good tractions that uh, we have like, I think we have reached a product market fit and received pretty positive feedback from the community regarding the user experiences and especially the aggregated liquidity that we are able to support the, uh, the traders with the optimal trading cost. Um, yeah, so what, what we are basically doing is we can route the positions of the traders to the uh, to the venue that costs them lower uh, based on the uh, complicated fees that they have like on the uh, on the several on the several yeah on the several uh, trading venues. So yeah, I think I can just stop here and yeah, definitely a little bit more later. Yeah, so just to go run through some of the stats that I'm seeing on Dune, you guys have had $15 billion in total volume. Mm -hmm. uh, for the last seven days, there's been $330 million in volume. And uh, that's pretty cool. And so in the last 24 hours, you guys have taken in $40,000 in fees with 265 unique users. Very, very good for the growth. Uh, so we can see some of the cumulative volume here uh, really was like picking up a lot in the past uh, quarter, like from, uh, or what was this, from March until July, and then it's kind of like leveled off. And I think this kind of like ties into what has been happening across the entire Arbitrum ecosystem, where Arbitrum was really popping off between, say, February, starting in Q1, really running into the end of Q2 and the middle of Q3. But it's, it's, it's lost a lot of steam uh, with the... Uh, coming out of, of base, uh, as well as the FinTech narrative with a lot of TVL moving there. And also Optimism has been catching up a lot as well, too, uh, with, with their uh, grants and also incentives. So the Arbitrum Foundation has decided to 
do this short-term incentive program, which you are one of the applicants. So I'm going to bring up your uh, application here. Uh, Gene, maybe you could walk me through your application and just talk about the mindset that Mux is going into the with and, and what the objectives that you're trying to achieve with it are. Sounds good. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I think must have like a pretty kind of unique position here because, you know, like we are an aggregator. So on the high level that what we are trying to achieve is that to, um, in, uh, to attract more uh, users, onboard more users and trading volume. I mean, especially uh, from other ecosystems. So as we all know, like Arbitrum ecosystem for now is the most robust derivatives. I mean, for the perps, uh, perps uh, track right now, but like we are still like only one to two percent regarding the trading volume uh, comparing to the centralized changes. So the high level here actually is trying to onboard more users from especially other ecosystem. Based on that, so like right now, um, what uh, we have did some calculations. First of all, is that because this uh, uh, incentive is trying uh, is supposed to run for four months, so we did some calculations based on the odd organic trading trading volume that we did in the past four months, and we calculate the trading fee generated from those trading volume, which is around which which is around four million dollars. So yeah, so that is that it means that like in the next four uh, about. Now that if we are trying to uh, rebate the trading some tra trading fees from the users, so that is a general. Um, I mean, the amount of uh, the amount of the incentive that we may, we might get. So right now, like uh, our uh, because like so right now that um, uh, based on the goal that we have right now, uh, we have uh, doing some we're trying to do some trading incentive, which is a core part of the distribution of the uh, of the of the grant. So about like fifty percent uh, will goes to the trading incentive, and another thing is that like uh, what we are trying to do is basically to rebate the traders based on whatever the trading fee that they paid. Uh, however, there's a key part here because we are integrated with thorough protocols like GMX, uh, GAINS, and also we have our native pool. And both GMX and GAINS will like kind of incentivize their uh, own trading for them. Uh, so we, we might have some multiple incentives here, but the key here is not to over rebate. So we will keep, strictly keep the rebate under 100%. So that like, uh, there is no like uh, worse trading incentives or whatever civil attack can happen here. We'll make sure that will happen. And yeah, so just to just to run through the this <clears throat> kind of grant information that you're talking about. Uh, I can see in the application that the original size of the grant was 9 million ARB, uh, yeah. but after the community review that has been reduced down to 6 million ARB, uh, mm -hmm. and you said that uh, around 50, well, here it says 55%, so around 50% of the ARB will be used for fee rebates uh, mm -hmm. that will be used to cover fee reductions for GMX v1, v2, gains, and then the MUX native pool. And then we see some of the uh, reductions in fees down here. So the, the GMX V1 pool is going to go from 0.1% down to 0%. GMX V2 will go from uh, uh, five basis points down to zero, five or seven, depending on maker or taker. 
and then gains will go down from uh, eight basis points down to, to zero uh, for its crypto trading. And then the MUX native pool will go down from six basis points down to zero. And so uh, that, that that's really interesting. So it's going to take away all, all the trading fees. Uh, but I mean, you'll still pay the fees. It's just there's going to be like a fee rebate, correct? Yes, correct. Yeah. Okay. And as I mentioned, we are dealing with very uh, prudently. So we're not wanting to do that. We don't want this to happen as like wash trading. So mm -hmm. if GMX or against whatever um, protocols, they are incentivized their own trading. Uh, on top of that, Max will rebate the rest of the uh, trading costs that user paid. We won't like over rebate here. Yeah. So, yeah, that's what I would be interested in is like how are, what are the methods that you're going to be using to track to see if people are wash trading oh yeah for sure so we have also have a one like uh i mean the rule here that uh we won't expose um we won't expose our rules here but we do have like a small team observing all activities mm -hmm. um because this is something like an airdrop because we, we cannot expose airdrop rule before the airdrop. Otherwise, someone will, you know, like uh, do some attack here, the civil attack here. So this is a basic rule here that we won't expose a rule, but our team, our team will observe all the activities. And if there are some like suspicious activities and to kind of, uh, you know, uh, do some civil attack or war trading, then we will, yeah, we will, we will kind of ex uh, uh, exclude those addresses from uh, receiving the incentive here. Mm -hmm. And so how you're one of the larger protocols that are on Arbitrum right now. How is the uh, communication process with the delegates proceeded? Oh, cool. Yeah. So I think, um, very uh very like appreciate to the uh conflict uh conflict uh from gmx and also t norm they're building um uh, delegates because they're kind of working on this in, uh, they have like this uh great uh, incentive working group that we're in and we're we're also pretty uh, active in so like we have been involved in the uh stip incentive plan from the uh, pretty early and we have been super super active there and after uh we have initiated this proposal we have uh, also reached out to several delegates uh, and to ask for their like i mean their feedbacks and also yeah talk with some some pretty uh uh, yeah, some pretty some some voices in the space. So yeah, after receiving some like the feedbacks from the community that, uh, yeah, we are uh, one of the larger protocols, but considering the yeah cap. Yeah, of it's it. okay. Yeah, we had cap, we had castle cap on a few days yeah. or last Friday. All right. Uh, yeah, and they they were talking about how they were uh, doing the review process. And so we can see here that they actually recommended reducing down from nine million to six million. Uh, mm -hmm. But overall, I think they were they thought it would be effective in uh, the the grant distribution because you know your the analysis that you provided for the the reasons for the six million R seemed pretty seemed pretty reasonable, right? Like over the past quarter that you were that of data that you had from I believe June until September. Uh, during that period, uh, there was $5 billion worth of trading volume, and that equates to about $4 million in fees. And so uh, if the if the trading volume stays equal, as it was for the past three months, then the $6 million ARB should cover that fee for the traders. 
Yes, um, and also we have like a, a part of the a part of the uh, incentive goes to the liquidity. So uh, for now, like for the trade empire is around like uh, a little bit more than three million. So yeah, it should be able to. But I think there is a high chance that this incentive grant will end early because of the uh, grant will be exhausted before four months. But it's totally depending on the market situation, you know, because. For the purse, if there is more market volatility, then will be much more volume ge generated from. If there is no, the mar if the market is stagnant, then very few. Uh, yeah, the, 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 the volume will be much lower. So, and, and, and so, what's your overall impression of the uh, the entire incentive program so far? Do you think it'll be successful in this first round? And what changes do you think will be made in the coming rounds? Um, so I think there is an interesting change for the for the uh, for the grants right now. Uh, we are aware of that. Like a couple of days ago, is that for the snapshot there is a quorum of like 70, 71 million, which I think one pro yeah one possibility is that I think maybe many protocols might not uh, pass a quorum. That I think that is the highest possibility here because that is equal to that basically means that each protocol will goes to the tally because the tally used to have that quorum so yeah so this is probably one uh, one thing will happen here but yeah i think like so much such a long list is something that we didn't expect at the first place so yeah uh for personally i think that it will be, it will be great that we have like uh Maybe next time, that next round or whatever, we were working on that. We have like a committee to kind of coordinate uh, the, I mean, uh, coordinate the uh, the uh, uh, the grant size and, and and the process a little bit more. That would be super helpful. Um, I think uh, for other ecosystem, they might have uh, they already have that like um, kind of helping helping uh, accelerate the process and to coordinate different protocols because there's a cap there. So yeah, so this is I think this is the first time which is already super uh, I mean it's a it's a it's already a huge step. But like I think um maybe like in the in a, uh in yeah in the next round upcoming next round probably it will be better if we have some like more coordination from the uh yeah from the committee or this is yeah. Yeah, I really like the UI, by the way. It looks uh, looks great. Uh, my only concern is that I cannot really see what's happening in the background. <laughs> it feels a bit like a black box for the, maybe for offline. But a great tool, great application. Oh, thanks. Very cool. <clears throat> so, Gene, thank you so much for, for being here. I, I really appreciate the... Uh, um, the description of what you guys are doing at Mux and how the Arbitrum short-term incentive program is uh, aligned in the operations and growth of the protocol. It really looks like the numbers that are generated from the past several months of operating uh, really do fall in line with what you're you're asking for. So I think that probably is, and, there, and it looks like there probably will be good political will to get this thing passed. So uh, I'm hopeful that you guys get the full six million arm. Oh, thank you, thank you. Yeah. Um, well, we also have another special guest here today. We have Millie, who has come on after uh, we saw him talking about the ongoing 
issues <laughs> that have been raised with both MakerDAO and then also Libra. So, uh, Millie, thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So maybe we could uh, choose which one. Do which one you want to start with? You want to start with Libra or, or Maker here because they're both they both have are equally interesting, I think, and uh, they've raised a lot of questions from the community and on on Twitter as well too. Yeah, I mean, um, they, they both have kind of a rabbit hole to go down once we start uh, talking about it. Like, I, I guess we could start with uh, Libra because it sort of chronologically happened uh, before the are offboarding the maker. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I kind of don't want to make us so entirely about Libra either because, or Libra, sorry. Like, I don't know if, like there are a lot of projects that are guilty here. Libra might not be the worst, right, party, but I think just the idea, the concept of having a token migration and then having a cutoff time for that token migration is, it's, it's, it's unethical, but it's also just like, you know, it's like backstabbing your, your community, I think, because, you know, yeah. Realistically, like, sorry, go ahead. Oh, so maybe we could take a step back and just like walk through what exactly happened because I don't think that you know we 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 know about it. Maybe, but maybe you could give like the high level summary of what the uh, library migration was and uh, what these kind of unmigrated tokens were. Yeah, sure. So, Libra was a it's like a protocol, a stablecoin protocol. It launched um, in the spring of of this year. It sort of, you know, was on the radar at first, but then like it got a bunch of TVL, um, essentially from uh, like ETH and and staked ETH, and basically, you know, it, it sort of blew up onto the map, and it had like a whole roadmap of like you know ideas that it was gonna uh, start shipping, and part of that was like a token migration. So you know, the protocol itself is only about like what six months old, this is you know short lived, but it had like some decent success. You know, in capturing TVL and capturing uh, like some product market fit, and you know, I think most people that were you know that are part of this community are pretty well engaged, right? And they're following along with all these developments. And so, I guess the team at some point during this, like, they have this you know this roadmap, this transition from a V1 to a to a V2, which sort of is a cross-chain um, stablecoin. Part of this roadmap, there was a, a migration process. Now, interestingly enough, I just pulled up you know earlier today that. They actually didn't disclose this migration process uh, that, you know, there's going to be a burning of tokens during this migration process, but they sort of talk about it as, you know, as they're describing the roadmap. And when it sort of came time for this migration process, I guess something's changed at some point. And they essentially, you know, made the migration so that you're not only migrating your position from the protocol, you're migrating the token, but you're, there are, there's also a cutoff time to do this migration for the token particularly. And so this cutoff time was a very short period too. Um, like 30, 30 days. Yeah, 30, 30 days. days. Yeah. Yeah. So they, they added this in, right? And I don't know where this came from because initially they had, they actually strictly said, and I, and I just tweeted about it this morning because I, I was looking up to in preparation for this call. And I sort of looked back at these old um, um, medium articles and I noticed this one uh, article that, like the initial article that described the roadmap, and it never mentioned anything about it. Actually, specifically says that the token supply will not change in the transition and I'll, I'll link that here and you know so I, they didn't so they explicitly you know as said that the token supply won't change but they also didn't really you know um give the community a good idea of like what to expect and i guess there was a lot of dialogue happening on discord or their forum or whatever but like anyone from the outside wouldn't have noticed this and 30 days is like a ridiculously short period so essentially this 30 day ended and 
I guess that's when like they tweeted out this tweet, like sort of, you know, they were essentially satisfied with their migration. And so the tweet was sort of like, you know, letting the uh, sort of like a, letting the community know that the migration was successful and finished. And that's when they sort of got a whole bunch of attention when people are like, wait, you guys are burning like you guys might had a migration, a certain amount of the supply migrated. They were satisfied with that. And then, you know, they're basically said whatever LBR is remaining is going to be burnt. Like the supply will be burnt. So this isn't sitting in people's wallets. It's somehow the token is going to be upgraded and those you know tokens will be transferred to the burn edge or something along those lines. So I think, you know, anybody, any re like reasonable person would look at that and say, you know, there's something very wrong with it. Right. So maybe I should pause there and, and uh, before we go for it. Yeah. And so the total amount of tokens that were not burnt, or at least that did not migrate and that are stuck now essentially in is uh is about two million lbr and at current prices of the v token uh that's v2 tokens roughly around a dollar so it's about two million dollars worth of lbr that is stuck and uh that that, that period of transition is really short i mean 30 days i mean like you go on vacation for 30 days and all of a sudden you come back and you know you're you're rugged and i, I saw several people who essentially said oh hey i didn't even know that this was happening it's it's a really short time period to communicate all this, and and I I'm I'm I missed the migration period, um, and so like what what happened next? So I think you know this brings us to like I think the broader question of how token migration should be handled in general. So mm -hmm. one thing I would say the reason why I found this particular case really egregious was because um, Libra is a very new protocol. It's like six months old. Right. The fact that it's transitioning, it has a migration is kind of a little bit, I don't want to say fishy, but it's questionable. Like, why is there a token migration six months in? Right. Um, like, why does a token need to migrate? It doesn't. Right. Like the real, the protocol might have to change to a cross chain protocol and change some sort of uh, some code infrastructure to accommodate that. The token itself doesn't actually necessarily have to change. Like I've been through this process. The token doesn't really have to go through a change unless, it, you know, some way is um the protocol is dependent on the token, which mm -hmm. kind of, um, and even if it is, it could just program the same address into the new protocol, right? So I, I really, you know, don't see a reason why the token had to be involved other than to, you know, change the supply, you know, which they did, they, you know, to change, make some adjustments to the supply and to the dynamics of, you know, how the token is vested and, you know, how it, it operates, I guess, and, and how many uh, tokens will be in circulation, because I believe there's a vesting in the migration process itself. So, Realistically, they had very, very, very weak reasoning to even involve the token in the migration. And then they have basically no reasoning to justify removing any amount of the supply, right? Like that, mm. to me, makes no sense. And I think it touches the broader idea of like token migrations and whether they should be open-ended. And I think in almost every case, they should be open-ended because like part of crypto, like one of the things we have to hold sacred in crypto is the idea of you know, the cold storage, right? Like that concept of cold storage of just like holding funds in a seed phrase and you know it's secure, you know, like that concept is sacred. We have to protect it. And if we have, you know, deadlines for migrations, like you're completely disregarding this whole, you know, application of like cryptography to this industry. So it's, I don't know, I think it's, you know, philosophically it's just wrong to do. And I think there's very few cases where it could be justified. And, you know, like I'll give a simple example of why you would want a deadline in a certain case. And that would be, if let's say a tokens on cosmos and it has its own validator set and it has like you know this all this infrastructure there that is completely belongs to the to that uh tokens protocol 
to its respective protocol and you want to transition that to like another chain like Ethereum, now you have, you know, a dynamic where there's validators that need to run indefinitely to support an indefinite migration. That might not be feasible. So maybe, you know, in a case like that, you'd say, okay, we'd have to have some deadline, you know, really far in the future, but we communicate it and we always have a, you know, a way for people to migrate if they really wanted to. And I think, so like the migration contract on Ethereum even could always, you know, you know, could potentially, you know, be indefinitely usable, but like, you know, maintaining those validators might be very difficult, um, you know, and definitely it, it might not be feasible. So that, you know, you'd have to have some deadline or you'd want to have some process of winding that down. Like that, you could just like, but when it's just the ERC-20, you know, on Ethereum and you're transitioning to a new one, you're just adding some supply for the team or whoever, or for the community, you know, it doesn't matter, right? You're tampering with the supply, you're changing it. And all of a sudden you're considering like not even migrating all the, the whole supply and burning some, I think that, you know, draws a line. Yeah, there's probably a, a, a much better way to do all of this where, you know, like these these migration contracts are typically just like the contract takes in the old tokens, which are then technically burnt or like locked. And then they issue the new token on the back at like one to one or whatever the new ratio is. Right. So the there isn't a ton of working parts that go into these migration contracts. There's no reason that they can't just be set up and then left for eternity. Right. <laughs> I, I don't I don't really understand why they didn't just airdrop right. They could have they could have just said, oh hey, like we're gonna if you if you have tokens in your wallet, we're just gonna airdrop you these new V two tokens. Thank you very much. You know, we'll move on at the end of the day, and we'll pay the gas fees to to ship everything out. It's just a very weird situation. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you know, there's a lot of ways you could probably be generous towards uh, their you know their behavior, but like I think you know. I would say there's somewhat of a somewhat malice to it, like you know. It looks yeah, when we, we let's actually let's. But I sorry, I don't mean to interrupt, but like I think we should actually talk about that because they have you seen the new uh, Medium article that they put up recently in the past day? Yeah, for the like for the proposed uh, uh, migration for the the non-migrant tokens. Yes. Yeah, yeah I, I saw it. Yeah. Yeah, and so like this is this is like what I think is the. Um, <laughs> where you could detect that there is some malice going on, right? Because it's not just that they're going to keep the migration contract open. They, they actually have three proposal details. And I, I, I want to know who's actually writing all this stuff because, again, just insane stuff for on-chain operations that should be really simple to, to conduct. So proposal A is to allow for V1 uh, tokens to migrate. Uh, into v2 as the their like es or like ve system uh, with three percent migration free so essentially they're they're saying that the tokens will need to be locked in their ve contract with a three percent migration free and then they have a, a three-month lockup after they've been swapped over which again these are these are free floating tokens at the moment that they're going to force a lockup on uh, the second option is is a more punitive option. It's to migrate the V1 tokens to V2 LBR with no lockup, uh, or no, they still have that three month lockup, and then they're going to charge a 20% migration fee. Again, very punitive. And then option C is remove non-migrated V1 LBR tokens from token circulation. Ex ex fully punitive here. Yeah, and for the where do you see that, Sam? Because I'm trying to find the governance. Oh, sorry, I, I wasn't sharing that actually. I I was I was going through. So we can see here. So uh, proposal A is migrate veto migrate tokens with a three percent migration fee.
proposal B is migrate yeah. with the 20 fee, and then proposal C is remove the tokens from circulation. So every, every single proposal is punitive in some way, just some more than others, with the C option being the most in removing those tokens from circulation. Just fully, just like fully adversarial in PvP coming from the DAO. And which, I think, like, yeah. Going back to first principles, also like how is this uh, executed? Or because I'm looking into the voting portal from uh, Libra, but I cannot find anything. Or how... yeah, I don't think it, I don't think it's up yet. I think this is like a this will be the first proposal period because they just switched to the new tokens, so they have a new uh, governance platform at Tally. Well, the, the, that number one is like, okay, like if you actually have a decentralized application, how can you switch to a new governance model uh, with, without it all being voted in? Uh, yeah, I don't know. I think it, we should be more strict to projects. If they can just migrate like this, oh, we're just going to migrate and burn tokens, I think. And maybe first, like, oh, why, why are they still able to do that? And it's not really a decentralized project, right? I just don't get the migration fee. Like, and they all have just, deadlines. You, <laughs> they all still have deadlines. And they all have deadlines. Yeah. And they still have deadlines, which is crazy. Like, just, just make a contract that has indefinite swapping. I, I, I just don't get the, the risk. I mean, maybe they think there's some risk to keeping that swap contract open for long periods of time. But I think, I think uh, you said it right, right? Like, the fact that there is some fee just, you know, highlights that that's not their intention, their primary intention, right? Like there is, and the exactly. fact that they're, they're forcing investing, they're doing all these things, like their intention is to, basically in my opinion, engineer like a supply reduction to like more favorite, to have more favorable price action, I think. And mm -hmm. to have like the farms sustaining longer so that, you know, TVL doesn't leave and stuff like that. I, to me, that's like what's happening. And I think that's like, you know, probably the, you know, a lot of people say like, oh, I'm being really harsh and that's probably like the worst uh, case scenario. But I think like, you know, realistically, like, no, it does just went up. Yeah. So that might, oh, that, yeah, <laughs> that migration fee uh, of 3% would net 61,000 LBR, which is roughly around $60,000 at this price. And that would be distributed to uh, ES LBR V2 holders. So essentially just, and, and that would either be 3% or 20%. So if it's 20%, you're talking upwards of what, like, of like almost a quarter million dollars, like $400,000 being distributed out to ESLBR. So there's some like really perverse incentives here to vote for option B and charge this 20% migration fee. Because like, if I'm a, if I'm a token holder, like why wouldn't I vote for B? Like screw those other guys. Like I, I want to get that 20% fee. I want to have my, uh, my, this, this yield rise for the next few months. And, and, you know, they missed it. So screw them. So I sh I'm going to vote for B. It's very PVP. Yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's you know, it's, like it's screwed in my opinion. Uh, you, you cannot trust them anymore if that uh, happens, I would say. <laughs> I, yeah. I agree with that for sure, because this is this early on. Like, remember, the project's only six months old. So imagine what they're going to do later on down the road, right? Like when, you know, we already see all these. Um, issues with projects like years down the road where they have this treasury and like dissolving the treasuries all you know has all this politics like you just imagine what they're going to pull then right like if it ever comes to that or or something so you know I, I this is a huge red flag and I think overall you know speaking to just projects in general your your token migration should be open-ended always and I'll give you a good example of how this is happening now if anyone remembers Aave's original token Lend that had an indefinite migration still open if you look at the Lend price 
the lend token, it tracks Ave one for one, right? It just with this token split, like Ave had a sorry, a token. Um, you, you burn like a thousand lend to get uh, one Ave or something like that, I think, or a hundred lend to get one Ave. So, but regardless of that, like outside the like the the, the different uh, total supplies, the the units track each other one for one. So, like in, in my opinion, it just you know that's how you handle it always, right? That there's no reason to do it any other way, right? Especially since we especially with the ERC token, a 20 token, which is like, it doesn't need an open-ended, like it doesn't need to have a migration cutoff down here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, we talked about GrowDAO, uh, I think three weeks ago, where they're winding down. And so they have a ridiculously short 30-day period where they're allowing people to uh, burn their grow tokens for portion of the treasury. And, you know, I can see that, right? So the team doesn't want to have this like open-ended contract that just is has like treasury assets that may be sitting in the future where, you know, 20% of the supply of the token wasn't burned. So uh, they, they just have like, they're sitting on $2 million a year or two from now. Like I, I can see that where they like have these strict, strict deadlines, but if you're still operating and the protocol is going to run and it, it will continue to run in the future, there's really no reason to have these deadlines and, and also to charge these migration fees. I think that's the worst part. Is like there's no justification to charge either thirty three or thirty or three or twenty percent, uh, let alone like take the tokens out of circulation. Just h- hilariously bad. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I didn't even see any. I, I was looking around for like a governance forum or something. I mean, I wonder if the discussions are happening internally on on uh, Discord. Uh, it doesn't look like there's any like public record of how these proposals were determined in the first place. Yeah, I mean, DAO governance, right? But uh, yeah, <laughs> I think these are like the bad examples that, you know, give a bad name to the industry. And like, you know, it, realistically, like, it's just an ethical thing, in my opinion. It has nothing to do with like what's legal, what isn't legal, that kind of stuff. It comes down to like just ethical, like your token holders. These are people that are holding your token. You're part of your community. And you're like, whether, it doesn't matter where they are. They could just be inconvenienced. They lost their seed phrase temporarily. Something could have happened, right? Like, it doesn't make sense to, you know, just... Um, just to forsake them. So yeah, I, I'm completely against that kind of thing. Exactly. Yeah, and, and looking it, at Vesta or other projects, mm-hmm. they're doing it in, in a very clean way. So there is way there's people that do it in a clean way. And I think that uh, as a community, you need to speak out against these projects and how, how did they migrate in the first place? I see that they, they want to have a comment. Yeah, they, sh- they should comment and then it should be like an open uh, discussion, but they should not be able to do, do things like that just without any... You know, then it's not a DeFi project and it's just CeFi. <laughs> yeah. And if you look at the post engagements on the tweet that they sent out, I mean, everybody's pissed, especially in the quote replies. Like a lot of people lost money. A lot of people just didn't know about the migration and missed the, the deadline and now are going to be at the will of the current LBR voters on how punitive the measure is going to be to be able to migrate over, which is really unfortunate, really unfortunate. So probably probably like the worst DAO governance decision of 2023 that we've seen. Um, we should rank the shenanigans like this earlier in the year, I think, too. A bunch of them, smaller protocols that sort of didn't really make a lot of noise or on their way out. So people didn't really like talk about it. Yeah. Like, we should have a ranking. Uh, yeah. Thing. Have yeah, like uh... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but, definitely. That would be useful. Uh, we also had you on to talk about another uh, bad, well, potentially bad governance vote or something that's causing a lot of waves. And that's the the maker maker's decision to deprecate their RETH uh, V1 vaults. 
or, or CDP vaults uh, that are actually really successful. They have around $30 million of TVL in them. And as you reported on Twitter, Millie, they have, they're generating about $1.4 million in fees annually. So from a cost perspective, like <laughs> from a, from a profit perspective, they're very profitable. They're making a lot of money and there's no reason to actually shut them down. And uh, Maker has proposed to essentially come in and set the uh, liquidation threshold up to 10,000. So almost every single vault would be closed uh, and liquidated. So you'll be forced back into uh, probably what, either die or, or USDC or um, uh, whatever's there. And uh, there's not gonna be any fees for it. And they're just gonna close it and force everybody to move over, which again, it's also very punitive here. Uh, when people are taking loans, potentially thinking about Hey, I want to have this loan to buy a house. You know, I'm going to put my my REITs in here, and you know, make a large purchase and then pay it down over time. So again, it's it's all kind of crazy here as well, too. Yeah, definitely. I think you know the you know what maker itself. I've had like a lot of uh, quarrels with them in the past, like with their just their philosophy on everything. And I think you know they've sort of lost their way a long time ago, in my opinion, but. This particular proposal, to me, it really seems like a shot at just a rocket pool. Like, mm -hmm. realistically, like, you know, this is, uh, Rune replied to me in a couple of tweets, like the, the founder of Maker, and he said, gave these kind of like excuses about how they would, you know, they kind of like the vaults have these, they, they require maintenance, you know, the people have to monitor them or whatever, and they have these Oracle costs. And, you know, even like others, you know, replied that like, you know, the Oracle costs do not cost that much. And for context, like Synthetics has, 50 plus markets all of them have oracles and these are you know um and and these are perps markets so these are like very you know dynamic a lot of volume coming in and out like a lot of positions at all times the, the market changes uh really quickly like market dynamics and you have to monitor these really actively right so like we vote on proposals to change you know parameters for markets like weekly like several times a week so like the idea that a vault that just sits there as collateral you just have to monitor like the overall liquidity for that uh, for that asset, and you know how much uh, you know utilization the vault's getting, and just pay the oracle costs, and that is too much for them to maintain. To me, it just it doesn't make sense. It doesn't add up, right? Like yeah. that doesn't make sense to me. And then what, what, the, what's the what's the kind of like baseline cost? Do you think that those oracles would be maybe like a few thousand dollars a month? Yeah, I would say something in that neighborhood. Yeah, and they're making I, one point four million annually. That's what it's synthetics. Anyway. Yeah, <laughs> like one point million and a half dollars annually in profit from these vaults. And this is on-chain revenue. Like, this is what I don't get about Maker. This is on-chain revenue. Like, this is crypto-native revenue. Like, this is lending on-chain. This is real, like, revenue. This isn't them taking people's funds or taking literally their reserves and putting it in T-bills, offshore accounts, and then calling that revenue. Like, that, I don't even count as revenue. That's not even real. Like, what is that? But this is real revenue, like, coming to the protocol. Why would you... And what they're saying, their excuse is that they're delegating this to Spark Protocol, which is like their lender, like their Aave fork, right? Which is great and all, but how does Maker make, like earn from uh, Spark? It doesn't. I don't know how that dynamic works. And someone from their community even uh, I'm, I'm, like replied to one of my posts saying that like, um, it, it's not clear how uh, Maker makes money off of Spark or even if there is a, uh, like if there is a non-parasitic relationship there. And so re realistically, like, why would they give up on this? Like, this is real revenue. And like, it's not just the revenue now, this is the bear market. It's what it could be in like a year from now. Why would you remove a cap? Like this is like, if that 
if RETH holders have that option and they know, like, if I buy RETH, I can go borrow against our maker. That's a reason to buy RETH. But, like, if there isn't these vaults, right, and they just look and they see there's a few lenders that support this uh, asset, then it's, you know, like, it, it maybe says, okay, maybe I'll go towards STE then, right? And so, like, that's the anti-competitive side to it. And I think it doesn't make sense to do that. Like, why would you do it? As maker, you have no reason. First of all, you have no financial incentive to do that. And then second of all, it completely is unaligned with, you know, what we're the ecosystem trying to do. Now, some people think, like, there's this existential threat with Lido. I don't really take that. I don't agree with that. I don't think there's this existential threat with us, our stake teeth and, and proof of stake getting captured by Lido. Uh, I have a lot of reasons for that. Maybe one day we can talk about that. But I don't think it's a big issue. But there are re reasons why you wouldn't want to exasperate the situation. You don't want to make it worse, right? And, like, you want to have, like, as decentralized as possible. So there's no reason to, you know, be anti-competitive here. There's just no reason at all. And, you know, in my opinion, I, because of a series of just, like, I feel like failed decision-making coming out of Maker over the years, I feel like this one was sort of, you know, um, you know, made me really, really angry. But realistically, like, you know, Maker being the number one, like, decentralized stablecoin ecosystem and constantly making these sort of weird decisions, like, Okay, sure, the protocol functions fully on-chain and is governed by a token on-chain, you know, woohoo, like pure decentralization. But then why are they taking funds from on-chain reserve and siphoning it off-chain to like these core units who literally just take money and put it into offshore, you know, bank accounts where they earn a yield for in treasury, uh, short-term treasuries. That's like not even, you know, that's that's so antithetical to crypto. Imagine, you know, farming, you know, US with US dollars with crypto money. Like it just doesn't. And this is supposed to be our, like, you know, the number one decentralized stablecoin. So to me, Maker has given up the plot on scaling a state, decentralized stablecoin. And they're just like taking, you know, they're, they're even, you know, they're giving away their on-chain revenue from RETH and like these different collaterals for no reason. And they're just, you know, going to decentralized options. I think to them, to me, like the, the, the project does not have a, has a grim future if it continues this way. Yeah, so just looking at what they're going to do, they're going to set the debt ceiling to zero on the uh, on the vault. Then they're going to raise the liquidation ratio up to ten thousand uh, percent, change the penalties to zero, uh, and then just pretty much liquidate everybody. I mean, you, you won't have a a choice on whether you get liquidated or how much time you have. And this is should be, let's see. So the executive vote is going to take no place sooner than the twenty fifth of October. You know, we had a. We had a vault change at Frax. Uh, they instituted a like a code update. There were significant changes that went into the uh, like stake Frax ETH, uh, Frax Lim pool going from like V1 to V2. And so there was uh, a reason for users to move, in the sense that you know the there was significant code updates, like more oracles that were added in. It was just a better security pool, and it was better for the protocol as well. And and when they did that upgrade. They they allowed people to stay in. They didn't liquidate anybody. They just they just tripled the APRs, or maybe they added on like an extra hundred percent in APR to push people over. Uh, so they just raised the rates high enough uh, that you know into the hundreds percents, maybe 150 percent. So you're paying you know a one to two percent fee per month, uh, and then hopefully you would move over. And I think there probably is still some capital in that pool. It's been maybe six months now. But there wasn't this, oh, hey, we're going to liquidate you fully and take all of your RETH and then push you back into stables. It just seems it's just a very strange decision.
Yeah, sorry, my, I, oh, my mic was muted there. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I agree. Like, it doesn't, to me, it's just, it, it seems political and anti-competitive. I don't know why they would do it. And then also, the one other thing I just want to say is, like, Rune's, like, rhetoric around it. What he's tried to do is, like, diminish, like, RE, like, to the public, right? Like, all these small cap, small token, like, you know, like, you know, try to downplay, like, you know, the impact of, of Rocket Pool on the ecosystem of, like, how... Um, liquid potentially the token is and stuff like that right like you know these small tokens like there's no it doesn't make sense for us to you know uh maintain these vaults for these small caps and it's like you know the vault is bringing in 1.4 million on the in a bear market and yeah you know, so he's clearly not being consistent and then he's going out that he's putting out this rhetoric that like it's not um you know potentially like as reliable as the and i think you know to me that just why would you do that like as a founder you know it's a delicate topic why like even people are like Lido contributors voiced their opinion about how you know this was concerning move by by makers. So it's not like it was just uh, some biased opinions here. Can you talk about that political aspect before? I mean, you think that that uh, maker is preferencing Steth here? I think so. Like they have this history of enshrining one asset and sort of like uh, like idolizing it, like they did with USDC. Like you know, they sacrifice. Like to them, the idea that Dai couldn't trade like more than a dollar like that to them they just thought that the trade-off of introducing all this usdc backing was worth it where to me it doesn't make sense that doesn't make sense right like i don't think any stable coin deserves to trade one-to-one -one. it doesn't make sense that it trades one-to-one -one because the supply of usd is in the trillions and the supply of these stable coins is in the hundreds of millions it doesn't make sense that you know and that any basics economics will tell you that it's impossible for these stable coins to trade at peg unless they're completely uh fungible right so it just, it doesn't add up. So the fact that Maker gave up on this idea, they completely, like, the idea that keeping the peg was the most important thing to them, and they philosophically completely fitted, pivoted from being a decentralized stablecoin, to me, it just, like, um, you know, they just made, have this track record of, like, enshrining one asset and sort of taking this weird way, like, I don't know, it's, I don't know where they got this philosophy from, because it doesn't align with anyone else in the ecosystem, but, and just, like, enshrining these one collateral, this one type of collateral. Uh, I don't know why they do it, um, like realistically, but it, to me, it seems very political and, you know, uh, up their alley of what they've done in the past. So just to jump back to the uh, Libra situation, uh, we had Jingo, who's a friend of the show, uh, hop in and uh, essentially share our link with the Discord. OX Marketing said, listening, and there's a great deal of inaccuracies. Uh, we asked them to come on the show to talk about it, and then uh, they actually banned Django from the Discord. <laughs> I, I even replied to the tweet saying, uh, uh, "Happy to hear any reasoning." <laughs> yeah. Seriously, they banned the Django after sharing. Yeah. <laughs> well, look, I, I, wow. we we have an open invitation to the library team. If you guys want to come on and explain yourselves, uh, we'd be yeah, more just than happy to hear yeah. about. I dropped the. I dropped the link in their Discord. So, so if you're in the Discord, OX Marketing, please hop on. The link is sitting right there. Yeah, if not, then you can come on later this week. We can give you the show uh, to talk about the supposed inaccuracies. Um, even, even a tweet thread would we, we appreciate. Yeah. So again, like I, this maker situation, all mess. It, and I think it probably just goes back to the way it was communicated with, with them saying, oh, hey, we're shutting this down. It's going to executive vote. We've already discussed it internally. Um, and this is the way that things are going to be. Uh, that's, I think, the way that, because it, it, it just kind of popped up yesterday, right? Like Rune comes in and says, 
this is being offboarded. Like, was there a bunch of discussion about this before it, before they published about it? I suppose it must have been like in the maker forums or in the Discord, right? But like, maker is just so such a closed off walled garden that like it's so hard to like see what's going on in there and to get into the weeds. It takes like so much of someone's like like average person's time to just get caught up. But I think it, well, what Rune is saying is basically to to that tune that you know uh, essentially was miscommunicated. But like what I want to say is that like you know um, I don't think so. Right? Realistically, there's you know the, your take when the protocol is has on-chain revenue coming directly to the protocol. There's no way you could justify that not being worth it when you do, the costs are like so simple. It's just like basic costs. Like the Oracle, just a smart contract operating. And it's just uh, the Vault is a smart contract. And it's just, you know, a little bit of monitoring on like these assets, not a lot of monitoring. And I can say like from um, experience, because at Synthetics, we have 50 plus perps markets. And perps are like, uh, you know, very dynamic and very... Uh, a lot of parameters for each market, right? Like the OI cap, the sort of the, the funding rate on the, the what we call the skew scale, uh, the price impact it has, and you know, like the, and the fees for the market. So there's so much going on, and we, you know, constantly tweaking with these parameters on a weekly basis through governance. And it's uh, like the idea that you know Maker just has is too much maintenance for them doesn't make sense. So I think you know Rune is trying to posture like it's it was uh, badly it was poorly communicated, but like I don't you know I, I just think it's like just mismanagement, like poor decision making. Yeah, I, I see that in this forum article that they're actually, I mean, they're talking about like the, the scope, right? And essentially, they're saying that RETH is, the, the amount of RETH that are in these vaults right now is much lower than it needs to be. And that they're about $12 million worth of RETH short to make it proportional to staff. Uh, and RETH only has about, what, $26 million of Tvel inside these maker vaults right now, while Steth has well over half billion dollars worth of Tvel. Um, so I'm I'm so happy you touched on that because isn't it just funny? Like, what is this artificial ceiling that they put? It is non-existent. This this yeah. idea is man. It's like a man-made idea that like it has to be at um, this you know this this utilization because it's profitable right now. So it doesn't need a bigger cap to be profitable. What it, what they're saying is like they're trying to say that if Arif cannot match the SDE uh, essentially like parity with SDE that, you know, has to be offboarded, which it, it just doesn't make any sense. Why would RETH be a parity? Because it's a minority uh, LSD, like it shouldn't be, right? It's less liquid. It's, it's a little bit smaller. Like you wouldn't expect it to be. And so the idea that it would be the same, it's it just unrealistic expectation of it, right? It doesn't mm -hmm. make sense. So it's like they, they set it up for, that's why I say it's like political, right? They set it up for failure from the beginning. And this is like, yeah. this artificial ceiling that they put on it. Like, or it's like this artificial uh threshold that it had to meet of utilization where it, it, why would it have to meet that? Like, there's no reason, right? It's just political reasons. Yeah. I don't see any other, our ETH is the only protocol that's actually named here uh, specifically about this uh, proportionality. Oh, we should get Jasper on to come talk about this. Jasper, if you're listening and you want to come talk about this, uh, we'd love to hear your opinion about how the Rockpool community is viewing this. Uh, or anybody else that is deep within Rockpool politics, uh, we'd love to hear your view. Uh, otherwise, I think it's a good place to wrap up on. We've kind of probably ruffled a lot of feathers politically, but we've also pushed them over the line by having Gene here. Thank you so much for being here, Gene. We loved hearing about Mux. Thank you for having me. Thank you, guys. Yeah. Uh, and also, Millie, uh, thank you for being here as well, too. We'd love to... The, <laughs> 
explanation of what's happening in in all these governance votes and man is it it's just it it's it's drama that never goes away does it yeah definitely. Right. thank you for having me and thank you for listening to me uh, ramble about these things <laughs> it worked in a bull market so really I was just gonna say, in a bull market, no one really pays attention to these things. Like it gets drowned out in the noise. And I guess there's bear market things that, like you know, we're discussing. You know, governance topics is the most, the, the biggest drama of the day. <laughs> it's yeah. really yeah, fun. It's great. It's great that you're yeah. doing it. Uh, I think it's really good that you're keeping track of all that. Like it's, it's. I, I didn't look into Libra. I look, I looked at it before, and I was always a little bit surprised why it got so big. But I, I, I guess I have an answer. But I would love to hear their feedback. So if they're listening, or you know, they, they should come on. Huh? that should defend themselves. And the MakerDAO discussions is also very interesting to, to put an eye on and to keep uh, everybody sharp. Great job, man. Thank you. Appreciate it, guys. Great to do uh, governance uh, content, both on the SKP proposal and to have uh, people like Gene and protocols like Max uh, come and share their thoughts about it. And uh, especially also uh, to have just users like uh, Mili, who are experienced uh, and very opinionated and have a lot of thoughts and uh, like opinions about uh, everything's going on. I think it's one of the things I like us covering the most. And also, I don't see this content uh, like uh, on many places uh, being talked about as much. And I really think, uh, I don't know, it's so much fun. I'm really enjoying it. <laughs> Well, I'll be Thank tuning into Leviathan from from now on as well. So you guys got to yeah. Be Thank here. you. You know that's what we need. Uh, and so today actually is the opening of the voting period for the Arbitrum grants. You know everybody's itching to see where the votes are going to go in the first day. We'll probably have a good idea of how those distributions are and who the early winners are when we come back to the show tomorrow. Next Thursday, we're going to have a big wrap-up episode. We're going to try to get everybody back on to uh, go over the winners and losers of the STIP proposal once voting is done. So tune in for that and also tune in tomorrow where we cover early voting. Uh, thank you, everybody, for tuning in, and we'll see you tomorrow. Goodbye, folks.